great to be here this morning. It's great to see Biola faculty sitting in the front row, starting off the year in the right note. Thank you very much. It'll serve you well. You'll see it in your paycheck. Um, just a matter of, in a matter of decades, you'll, that will be true. Hey, um, let me pray again. Lord, canopy this place with your spirit today as we go to your word, as we worship, as we exalt you, the resurrected Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm not a conformist. I, I ha- I'm not wearing a black shirt, shorts. I'm not going below that low bar. And, uh, and, I'm not, and I am using notes. So uh, I'm not going above that high bar. So uh, we miss Mike. John 11. Powerful story of Lazarus. We're going to go there today. So if you have a Bible, there'll be some verses up on the screen. Go there. Pretty much stuck there for the next 30 minutes or so. And uh, I I actually pray that as we go through this very well-known story, that you will open your heart to maybe hearing the the Lazarus story in in a new way today. The story begins in such a great family note. You've got these two sisters, Martha and Mary and their brother, Lazarus, and it's a very close-knit family. And we hear in chapter 11, verse 5, that Jesus loves, loves them. And the problem is that Lazarus has gotten sick. He's taken a turn for the worse. His situation is, is very grave. And so uh, the sisters don't really know what to do except to go to Christ. And so this is what they do. And this is the story that we're going to follow this morning. So imagine this in your mind uh, as I read from sections of chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord, wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Remember that word glory. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, bizarrely, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Down to verse 17. On his arrival into Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, maybe perturbed, that's a marginal reading, if you had been here my brother would not be dead. But I know that even, though, even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother is going to rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world. Verse 38. 
So Jesus deeply moved. Remember a few verses earlier, Jesus had wept. This is how emotional he is at this moment. Deeply moved, he came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out with his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to the disciples, you take off the grave clothes and you let him go. Lazarus is laying there dying. His sisters are at the end of their rope. They send word to Jesus to come so that their brother can live. But the problem is Jesus had left Jerusalem two miles to the west of Bethany a number of days earlier, and he was now quite far away. As a matter of fact, you see at the end of chapter 10 that Jesus had moved about 20 plus miles to the area of Jericho and even farther east from that to the Jordan River region, across the Jordan River into what is today the nation of Jordan, and there he was ministering to some people in the area where John the, baptized had, John the Baptist had baptized him and had baptized some others. So Jesus wasn't really nearby, 22 miles away. In that time, I guess in today's time as well, like the average walker made it about 20 to 25 miles in a day on a good day. So imagine if it was a Monday morning that they wanted to get word to Jesus, right? So they send a messenger, because they said they sent word to Jesus. That messenger had to walk the full day Monday to get to the Jericho region where Jesus was, find him, tell him that night that Lazarus is, is on the brink of death, and then on Tuesday morning when Jesus got up, no doubt he would start heading west back towards Bethany and be able to be there to heal Lazarus. But that's not exactly what happened. When Jesus heard that his dear friend Lazarus was dead, he didn't like drop everything in a like very peculiar, almost lost phrase within this story. It said that when Jesus, verse 6, heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days. Let me say, I actually think the sisters have a legitimate beef with Jesus. All right? I mean, if there's like one thing that's annoying about Jesus, am I allowed to say that? I don't know. (laughs) Doug? Okay. The New Testament guy in the front row. If there's one thing annoying about Jesus, he doesn't come on time, right? At least my time. So Lazarus is dying. Jesus gets word of it. He stays two more days. The sisters don't know that. They're waiting. They're like, Jesus, come on. Where are you? I'm getting impatient. They had somehow forgotten about the Isaiah passage where it says, they that wait, right, upon the Lord, he'll renew their strength. They're going to mount up with wings as eagles. They're going to run and not be weary. They're going to walk and not faint. Well, they were getting faint. 
as they waited. And they kept looking up the road that headed to the east, that road from Jericho, waiting for Jesus to kind of cross over the horizon, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Healer to come, but he wasn't coming. One day passed, two days passed, three days passed, four days passed, and finally, verse 17, Jesus arrives in Bethany, and already Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Tuck that away. When Jesus arrives, Lazarus had been entombed in that crypt for four days. The sisters are beside themselves. Beside themselves because they're grieving that their brother had died. And they're beside themselves most likely that they're frustrated that Jesus had procrastinated. Hadn't come when they needed him. So Martha, the busy one, rushes out, but Mary stays in the house. And Martha says to Jesus in verse 21, if you had come when we'd asked you, (laughs) Jesus, our brother would still be alive. Where were you when we needed you? You ever ask that question? Where were you? when my mother died too young? Where were you when my son's illness didn't get any better? Where were you, Jesus, when I got that pink slip and I couldn't find work? Where were you when the bills were piling up? Where were you when my son's addictions didn't seem to be getting any better? Where were you, Jesus? And in desperation, You keep looking for Jesus and he doesn't seem to be coming. Martha said, Jesus, we told you to come. And it's been four days and you arrived just in time for the funeral. That great philosopher Yogi Berra once said, "Um, you got to go to other people, your friends' funerals, or they won't go to yours. Um, So... Jesus makes it in time for his friend's funeral. And what is Jesus' immediate response when he shows up? He's not all like frenetic saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I got caught up in the ministry thing. I rushed to get here as fast as I can. I know I delayed a few days, but where's the grave? Let's get to work right now. He doesn't say that. He doesn't come in all like exercised with anxiety. He doesn't come in like some superhero. He's not the roto-rooter man, right, to come to fix your problems, that they want him to be, instead of responding with wonder, Jesus responds with words. It's calming, assuring words. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though they were dead, they're going to live. And then he poses this question to Martha. He says, Martha, do you believe this? And she rattles off this theological litany of truths that, that, that just kind of bubble right up. She says, I believe you are the Christ. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you have come into this world. Almost in an Apostles' Creed-like fashion where we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ's only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, raised again on the third day. We believe, right? Or that Hillsong song we sing, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son. 
believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, this articulation of belief in response to Jesus' proclamation of who he was was the first thing that came from Mary's lips. Martha's lips, sorry. Martha said all the right things. She said what was theologically true. Did you know that the word believe is found in the book of John more than any other book in the Bible. And I know we quickly default, okay, I remember, I know John three sixteen for God's love of the world, he gives only but son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, I got belief there in the book of John. John is filled with the word belief. Not only is that true, but there is no chapter in the entire Bible that has the word believe more than the chapter, than chapter 11 of the book of John. Belief is saturating this chapter. And I have to believe that we, no pun, right? I have to believe that there are two kinds of belief that are happening for serious disciples of Jesus. And this is what he's saying. The first kind of belief is that you need to believe, Jesus says, in what I say is true. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe this? And she says, I believe you are the Christ. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe. I'm there. I believe. I'm with you. Believing in what Jesus says is true or what God's word says is true is fundamental to our faith. That's the first kind of belief that was happening here in John chapter 11. We believe that the word of God is true. It is trustworthy. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. It is our guide for life. We've got to believe what this says is true. Paula and I were at a reception a couple nights ago for the, the new Bible museum that's opening up in Washington, D.C. An entire museum devoted to this book. 430,000 square feet, three times the size of the Air and Space Museum just two blocks away. A $1 billion project which is dedicated to the trustworthiness, the history, the, the, the stories, the influence and relevance of scripture right in the nation's capital. And I was talking to uh, Rick Warren who was there. That, no, it sounds like I'm name dropping. Um, Colin Powell once told me never to be a name dropper. <laughs> and, uh, and that night, Rick was saying to the reception, he said, there's two earthly things that last forever. One is people and the other is God's word, Right? That's why Peter writes, quoting Isaiah, all people are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the fields. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. That's why the psalmist says, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. That's why Paul can say, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why Solomon, in rattling off the Proverbs, says this in Proverbs 29, 18, a verse that we often get the wrong way, where he says, there is no, where there is no vision, a people perish. And we put that on annual reports and strategic plans, but really what it means is where there is no revelatory input of God's word, People come undone. They become unrestrained, believing in the truth, the power, the authority of Scripture matters. We have to when we understand what it means to believe. 
That's why I'm glad I'm a part of this church and our family is here and we hear Mike preaching from Scripture Sunday after Sunday. We don't dink around with the Scriptures here. We don't use Scriptures sparingly. They're not marginalized. They're not tacked on to positive thoughts that we might have and we proof text by using some Scripture to justify whatever it is what we're trying to say. The core of who we are First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton is a fundamental commitment to God's word. Jesus makes this declaration to Martha and says, Martha, do you believe that what I say is true? And she says all the right things. I believe you are the Christ. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you have come into this world. But is believing in what God's word says being true, is, is that enough? I, I don't think so. Because first of all, the story's not done. Jesus interrupts this passage by saying to Martha and the disciples who are listening, the mourners who are gathering around, he said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Not just believing in what I said was true, but when he made that statement, Lazarus was still dead. There was more believing that needed to take place. It's a few minutes later, Verse 39, Jesus walks up to this cave, this crypt, this vault that contains the decaying body of his dear friend Lazarus. And there's a stone, large stone that's rolled across the mouth of that cave. And he says to Martha, and no doubt the others who are there, you go take away that stone. Well, suddenly, you know, Martha backpedals. She had said all the right things, but when he says, if you believe me enough in what I say is true, do you believe I have the power to do what I can do? And she said, well, wait a second, Jesus. There's, there's, a, there's a bad odor in there. My poor, departed, beloved brother, his body's in there. It's been in there for four days. It's beginning to rot. She sounded a lot like that tormented father in Mark 9 who brings his son to Jesus who's so ill and Jesus says, do you believe? He said, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And I actually am so impressed by Martha's response because that's my response too. I mean, I think I've got a pretty good grasp theologically and what biblically is true. But Martha had the confidence and courage to be able to say to, to Jesus, you know, I believe, but the part of me, I don't believe. I don't know really what to believe. This situation seems so impossible before me. And I don't have the faith to really believe that you can do what you say you're going to to do. Sometimes even with my biblical understanding, my ability to quote the Apostles' Creed, I don't have the faith that I can handle these big challenges in front of me. And I think your life and my life are a lot like that. This is the human story. This is the story of what it means to be on this great adventure with Jesus. A couple of years ago, um, my friend and colleague Adam, who's over here, uh, we were working on trying to raise money for a, a building at Biola and the clock was ticking on permits and we needed to get a certain amount of money in. It was a lot of money, more than we thought we could actually raise. And so we went to this one family's house over lunch and he and I had talked about it. We thought, you know, we, I think this family will probably want to give us about $300,000 to this project. So we went there, had a wonderful lunch. About halfway through the lunch, the, the mother hands me a check folded and I hold it. And I wanted to open it, but that's not, wasn't like the right thing to do in front of somebody. So I just kind of like put it in my pocket and thanked her and 
the rest of the lunch kind of took a long time <laughs> to finish. And uh, so my heart was beating a little bit. Come on, we need, we need this help. We need this help. Hopefully they'll be able to step up to the plate for $300,000. Adam and I walk into the car. And, um, you know, okay, the first thing I do um, before I even start the car is I like, pull out the check, open it up. And they had made a very generous contribution of $30,000. Just one decimal off, though, right? <laughs> decimal off. And no sooner had I started the car than a text message came into my phone. And as that text message came in, um, I received word from someone back at the, uh, at the office that a couple that I had been with a few weeks earlier and was hoping that they would give us a check for $100,000 had just sent in a check for a million dollars. Just one decimal off. And, and, and I, it was a profound lesson for me that, that you trust and you do what you need to do, but God's in charge of the decimals and I'm not. We plant, right? We water, we sow, but God makes things grow. And we can't be rushing to make things happen, but it's trusting what God can do. That's why when we get to this passage in Hebrews eleven eight, where it says, by faith, Abraham and Sarah, they set out and went to a place they were called to go. They obeyed and went, even though they didn't know where they were going. There's something about obedience in the life of the disciple of Christ where we obey and go even though we don't know where we're going. And the Bible gives us permission to do that. Do you ever feel that way? Where you know, okay, I'm a strong believer. I've got the Bible thing down. I go to Bible studies. I memorize. I read about scripture. But I'm at a point right now, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Abraham obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. Good news is a few verses later, later it says that he... He knew what he was looking for. He had his eyes fixed on a city, right, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, or as the next chapter rolls out, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. It's okay that you have these times in your life when these situations seem so insurmountable before you. And I say this especially for the people of God that have spent a lot of time, like, embracing the scriptures and believing them. And they get to these situations when you're like, Martha, Lord, I'm not so sure. When you tell me to roll away that stone, that I have the courage and the courageous faith to do what you want me to do. There's that great illustration in Psalm 119 where the word of God says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I don't think it's saying the same thing twice. I think there are times when all I can see is my feet and I can't see any farther ahead of me. And God's word is that lamp to my feet. I'm just going one day at a time. And I can't look beyond that. Lord, help me through this rocky terrain. May your lamp be a light unto my feet. And there are other times when it's a light unto your path. And you see the vista and you know you're going. There's a lot more certainty in your life. But sometimes we, like Martha, say, Lord, I believe in what you say is true. But I'm not so sure about this huge challenge that's in front of me. Sometimes we believe all the right things, but in these seemingly impossible situations, we're like Martha. Lord, I believe what you say is true, but when these surprises come my way, catch me off guard, surprises that might be good, surprises that might be bad, I don't know how to respond. And a job is terminated, a promotion is offered. A spot appears, a question is popped, a daughter checks out, a son comes out, a moving truck pulls up to your house, a pregnancy test comes back, 
positive or negative again and you're in this barren part and you don't know where you're going and you're wondering what's going to happen next and it's confusing, surprising. And that old hymn comes to mind that we sing when we walk with the Lord, right? In the light of his word. What a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and to all who will trust and obey. You trust and obey if there's no better way to be happy, content in Jesus than to trust and obey. Martha is learning not just to believe, but to trust and trust in this obedient faith. And it took her and the disciples to be pushed out of their comfort zone their comfort zone in believing that he is the Christ. He is the son of God. He has come to this world. But then he says, if you believe in me, then you go move that stone away. And I love the fact that Jesus didn't walk up to that grave and in his eternal strength just move his hand and the stone rolled across and Lazarus came out. No, he said, you go and you move that stone away. If you believe in who I say I am, then step out in faith in what I can do. And why do we do this? Well, the answer is found there in verse 40, which is the pivotal anchor central point of this entire story. When Jesus turns to Martha after she said she believed in who he was, and he says to her, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Not, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see your problems be resolved. Not, didn't I tell you that if you believed, I'm going to fix these challenges that you're facing. But Jesus said to them, to Martha, disciples who are listening, mourners who are observing, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Belief is not for our own gratification of what God can do to fix what we have wrong with us, but belief is for God's glory. So that's why two types of belief are being articulated profoundly in this story. The first, when Jesus says, you've got to believe that what I say is true. And the second is, you've got to put your belief into courageous faith and obey me. And there's only one reason why you're doing this. You're doing this so that you can see the glory of God at work in your life. That's all. Martha said all the right things. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Son of God. But when Jesus tells her to roll that stone away, she wasn't so sure. But Lord, my brother's body is in there four days now, and it's starting to stink. A.W. Tozer wrote this, the dynamic periods were those heroic times when God's people stirred themselves to do the Lord's bidding and they went out fearlessly to carry out his witness to the world. The miracle of God went when and where his people went and it stayed where his people stopped. Actually, earlier in Jesus' ministry, there's a passage that said that Jesus didn't do many miracles at that place because the people didn't believe. If you believe, not just give this intellectual assent to who God is, not just passively reading the scripture saying, yeah, that makes sense. But if you believe, 
God's glory is going to show up in your life in ways that you can't even imagine. I was meeting some time ago with a new faculty member at Biola. His name is Richard Flashman. Richard grew up in a strong Jewish family in Newton, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. After college, some friends that he had began to tell him about Christ and Christ as the Messiah. And he said, I began to read the scriptures over and over again. He says, as I read the Old Testament, it became abundantly clear to me that intellectually, Jesus had to be the promised Messiah that the prophets had talked about. He said, so for a period of time, I believed that was true. But he said, it wasn't until God confronted me in a synagogue in Marblehead, Massachusetts, standing out there in the parking lot, that I realized that true believing is following Christ with your life, not just understanding him with your mind. It's not this just intellectual comprehension of who he is, but it's this trusting, obedience, lordship thing. And he said, that's when I truly understood what believing was. James writes in the New Testament, you believe there is only one God good. Even the demons believe that. It's not just grasping this understanding of who God is. It's being grasped by the power of the Spirit in our lives that allows us to say, yeah, I believe, Jesus, who you say you are, but I also believe enough that I'm going to step out in that situation in my life, and I'm going to begin to shove that stone away from that challenge that's far beyond anything that I could do, because I believe when you say that if I believe this way, God's glory is going to show up in my life. Didn't I tell you, Jesus said, that if you believed you will see the glory of God. And remember, Jesus shows up four days after he's beckoned. Lazarus' body has been in the tomb for four days. Jesus heard that Lazarus was dying, and he stayed two more days before he came. It's not about time management, but it's about God's sovereignty. It's interesting that uh, rabbis would teach that time that when a body dies, the spirit of that body hovers over the body for three days, wanting to get back into that body. And after three days, when the spirits that are hovering see that the body is beginning to decay, the spirits leave. On day four, that body isn't just dead, it is legally formally, officially, legitimately, or as they say in Boston, wicked dead. Not just dead, wicked. This thing is, this body is dead. And when does Jesus arrive? He arrives on day four. When all hope is gone, when any expectation that some kind of hocus-pocus resurrection will take place because the spirits that have been hovering over the body for three days is completely eliminated, Jesus shows up then. On day four, In verse 41 that we see the disciples, perhaps Martha, says they obeyed and they walked on up out of their comfort zone. It said they took the stone away. And Jesus begins to pray. And this is his prayer. Father, in verse 41... I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. 
Jesus' prayer is that they might believe. And then when Jesus said amen, doesn't say he said amen, maybe he didn't say amen, but when he said amen, when the prayer is over, the Bible says that Jesus called out in a loud voice and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen and there was a grave cloth over his head. And Jesus says to his disciples, you who rolled the stone away, you go take off his grave clothes and you let him go because you have not just seen a miracle, you have seen the glory of God. You see, when Lazarus walked out of that grave, hands and feet wrapped in linen, a grave cloth over his head, Jesus did not want to hear the disciples saying, look, Lazarus is alive. He wanted to hear them say, we have seen the glory of God. All that happened when Jesus cried out in that loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The power of his words. I remember when I was a child. JJ, wherever you are, come on out here and start playing something spiritual so I can land this plane here. <laughs> that voice, that, like Aslan's roar. That, so so, so I, was, I was in a Sunday night service. We, had the, we used to have these revivalists come through our church, and they were stemwinders. I mean, they could preach and get things going, get us all. But I remember he was telling the story, this evangelist of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And he said that when Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out, he said, had Jesus not called Lazarus by name, every grave would have opened to resurrected life. You see, there is truth in the words of Christ. And there's power in the words of Christ. And the truth leads us to this profound conviction that what Jesus says is true, what God's word says is trustworthy. But the power, the Holy Spirit, working in our lives of those who believe, we have to see beyond that. Not just what Jesus says is true, but the situations in our life that seem completely impossible of what God can do. And that doesn't mean he's gonna do them on our timeline. That doesn't mean he's going to do them the way we expect to do them. But whatever he does, he is going to do so that God's glory is revealed through your story. Didn't I tell you, Jesus said, that if you believe conviction in what I say is true and you walk into these uncertainties and challenges before you with courageous faith, you will see the glory of God of God, the glory of the one high and lifted up, whose train fills the temple, the glory of the exalted and resurrected Christ. You will see glory in your life. Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we come to you this morning. People of God, people who are wondering and searching and we ask that you come Holy Spirit come and you fill this place and you anoint each life here strengthen us to have the courage to believe more than just what you say is true but may we walk into that courage may we roll those stones away that are stones over these impossible situations in our life not with a predictable answer but so that we might see your glory didn't I tell you, Jesus said, that if you believe this way, you will see the glory of God. Come, Lord Jesus.